Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. For more than 2,000 years, Jewish people have been blamed for countless ills by groups across the world, almost always for unfounded reasons. But why specifically the Jews? What has made them such a perpetual target? Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Paul McGowan. Hey. And today we're going to be talking about anti-Semitism, which should be a nice, light, fun one. We've been doing a couple of heavier topics and under the umbrella of this wider fascism topic, and this one was going to have to come up sooner or later. And I actually ended up switching focuses a little bit uh, from what we had been talking about earlier in that, you know, I, I was taking on a very, very ambitious scope when wanting to talk about the place of uh, Jews in Europe. And there's a lot of material to go over there, man. And I realized that really what I want to be focusing in on, especially for the purposes of this uh, topic, is not so much like a comprehensive history of the Jewish people, which is nigh impossible, and uh, a lot more on the ways in which they've been uh, marginalized by European society over the years. Yeah. No, I mean, well, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, it's a really, it's a really kind of bright, happy time in the world right now. So it's the perfect time to tackle those heavier subjects, I think. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and uh, listen, I can't control what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's, it's a great, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited to tackle it because it's one of those things that it, it just doesn't, I feel like if you're a rational human being, it doesn't make sense. Mm. Anti-Semitism, right? You're like, you're like, why? Why? Yeah. Just, just why? Yeah. And I mean, that's, I guess the, the question we're going to, we're going to try and get to the bottom of today. We'll see how successfully, by the way, can I just say it's been a long time since I had you on the show. I'm really excited to do this with you again. I know I, I dug up the other day for somebody else to listen to the episode about, uh, the, the rise and fall of Shiv Palpatine and, uh, <laughs> yeah, a classic <laughs> brought back some really good memories. That was yeah. a good show, oh, man. Yeah. Really enjoyed that one. Anyways, let's get going yeah. with it. Normally what I would do at this point, like it's, it's what we did with evolution and it's what we did with scientific racism is kind of just like define terms out the gate. And I think what I want to do this time is just like leave that for the very, very end. And I do have a reason behind that, but the, the problem with defining antisemitism is that like, there's so many different kinds of anti-Semitism that I think that what I'm hoping to do is that by the time we get to the end, be able to go through a few different things that are very, very common threads and 
be able to look back with you and go, okay, this is where that comes from. This is where, why that happens. You know, this is, this is the source of all of this stuff. So if we do this successfully, we'll get to the end and like run a little like pop quiz thing and you'll be able to knock them out of the park and yeah, we'll call it mission, mission accomplished. Yeah, that's exactly what I pictured. Okay. So, so quiz at the end is that's, that's good with me. That's nor- not normally my style, but this one seems to, <laughs> um, this one seems to lend itself to the format somewhat. Yeah. The other really complex thing to define in this topic is Judaism specifically, right? Because it's not quite as straightforward as you might treat something like, uh, you know, another religion, another ethnic group, because they are very much uh, overlapping for a good chunk of their history. And in a lot of ways, in the ways that Europeans have thought about Jews throughout uh, history, right? It's both an ethnic group and a religion at the same time. And that gets kind of complicated as you go through, right? Yeah. What's more, they're an ethnic group that had a major diaspora nearly 2,000 years ago where most of the members of this group and religion are scattered across the world without really having a, a dedicated homeland for a very, very long time, which is also a little bit tricky. I mean, normally when we talk about ethnic groups, it's like, it's the people who live here. It's the people who share this language. Well, there's a lot of Jewish people throughout history that don't share a language or share an, a, a, a geographic area. All of that's kind of off the table as well. The ethnic component kind of bolsters religious exclusivity. So in that, in that um, generally throughout their history conversion has not been like a major goal of judaism in fact a lot of times it's been kind of discouraged um so it keeps like, i did not know that yeah 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 i mean there, there's a lot of misconceptions about jewish people trying to like forcibly convert other people but usually that's kind of overzealous christians sort of putting their own baggage onto jewish people uh it's not really a religion that's uh based in like a, an evangelist uh, uh mindset they're not going out to uh spread the word to everyone they're going to think of themselves very much more as a, a chosen people which is a, a term that you'll hear come up fairly often right and it's kind of like well we we are the people like this is it this is it we're the club it's, it's not necessarily something that they're doing active outreach. They're not going to necessarily turn down single-minded converts, people who are seeking it out, but it's also not like a mission of theirs to go and convert other people. That is so different from Christianity. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's it's very different. And, and that's a theme we're going to run into a lot is the the european experience and the christian experience aligns so closely for so long that it becomes a very default mindset a, de- a default outlook and a lot of what people understand about judaism is from a very christian outlook and that's not to say that everything that they know is wrong necessarily it's that there are a lot of assumptions being made about this faith and about this group of people that are you know sort of flawed from the premise right you know, the religious component highlights that ethnic distinctiveness in that, you know, there's this group of people practicing in a certain way, and it sort of serves to prevent those people from assimilating into a larger society to some extent. Because Judaism is so distinct from other religions, once you know somebody is practicing that, they seem to stand out from an outsider's point of view. Right. A lot of religions in history are not monotheistic. Uh, for lack of a better term. Again, that's a thing that we're very, very accustomed to in the West because, um, you know, Christianity. But you have to keep in mind that 
for a lot of for for a lot of history the idea of only worshiping one god and not only just like worshiping one god but denying the existence of other gods is like a really weird quirk um kind of in the in the global and historical scheme of things right and this is kind of the first thing that starts um distinguishing the jewish people from other religions i'm not planning on going back to like the beginning of any of this stuff i'm not planning on doing any uh sort of biblical biblical history or anything like that um we're going to stick to what we can sort of uh get to through traditional historical means and we're going to start with the roman empire which is where basically all histories start right like that's just kind of how it goes um you know judea had been occupied by a series of foreign powers over hundreds of years right like babylon the greeks alexander the great had rolled through there then you know the kingdom of judea had split off and had its own little independence again and then the romans come boiling in again in about 63 bce okay wait wait. ignorant ignorant question time mm-hmm. like in judea was a kingdom judea, like a country it, like yeah it's a kingdom um okay it's essentially in uh what we would current day call uh israel right it's in it's in the levant okay it's uh on the sort of eastern banks of the mediterranean right like that's where jerusalem is located that's where uh, you know it's it's where you think of israel so but it's not going to be called israel for a very very long time it's it's historically known as the kingdom of judea so um yes it is a kingdom yes it can it constantly be it becomes uh, occupied by foreign powers people are taken out as, as slaves under under the babylonian empire eventually you get to the roman empire coming in and, and taking them over in 63 bce and it's incorporated as a full-fledged roman province in the year 6 ce so roman conquest in this period is very much like a mixed bag like in some ways it's not necessarily the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you like it's going to come with some perks but like in another way it it really you you lose a lot of autonomy you lose a lot of freedom um you're going to be paying more taxes i was trying to come up with like some sort of like metaphor and the best i could come up with was like a homeowners association like your property (laughs) value is going to go up Your property, your property value is going to go up, but like now somebody's going to be paying attention to like how often you cut your lawn and you know, <laughs> depends on kind of what sort of person you are. Maybe, maybe that works for you. Maybe it doesn't. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you know, the, the Romans come in, everything's okay. I mean, most Judeans are probably not terribly happy about the Romans being there, but it's sort of just the state of the world around 2000 years ago, right? Like the, the Romans are at the peak of their game at this point, as long as they're paying their taxes, they're just happy to have uh, the Jewish people as, as subjects. This is not a problem for the Romans until you get to specifically 42 uh, BCE, January 1st of 42 BCE, when the Roman Senate declares the divinity of julius caesar and for most romans this isn't really a problem because what it functionally means for yeah oh you didn't know this he's he's actually a canonical like roman god like in the pantheon of roman gods um the senate had the power to do this damn yeah i mean this is a this is a time period where sort of civil participation and religious participation are not really meaningful distinctions necessarily you know you're going to have 
like even even people's political careers, like a, a, a part of becoming a, a large politician or a powerful politician might involve appointments as priests of different temples, right? Like this is a this is a very intertwined um, set of power structures in Rome. And what they do is essentially elevate these emperors after they're after they're dead. It's called elevation. And essentially like one day a year, you are required as a Roman citizen to go to a civic temple where you're going to be worshiping gods that are former emperors. Okay. And for most Roman citizens, both like traditionally Roman, like come from Italy, Roman, and in later Roman Empire, when you're starting to like incorporate people from other parts of Europe, for most Roman citizens, this is not really something to blink at other than like, okay, fine, I guess I got to go deal with this one today, right? But it could be one of a dozen temples that you're uh, uh, visiting on a yearly basis it's not necessarily like a weird thing right like you're just incorporating one more ceremony into your life and not only is it a religious ceremony so it's like you're praying for like the success of the empire but it's also like a civic duty right like those prayers are part of your like being a good citizen okay can i ask a question that there may not be an answer to absolutely uh how like how devote were the Romans when it came to worship of of all these gods? What like was it viewed as like a as like a yeah I guess it's Christmas we got to go to church kind of thing or or were they like super into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like with so many other religious adjacent issues, it depends depends a lot on the on the individual. Like you might have a pet cause where you spend most of your time volunteering at praying at donating to a specific temple with a specific patron god that speaks to you more fully than uh than another one but that doesn't mean that you necessarily like explicitly disavow any of the other gods like they're there too in your mind it's just you can kind of just deal with them being over there and like maybe if something comes up you might uh uh, interact with them religiously but it's it might not be something that you're thinking about every single day so for example like if you're if you're um if you're a farmer you're going to uh certain temples to pray you know before you're planting for a good harvest right if your loved ones are going to war you're going to be going to a temple of mars for for you know to pray for their protection things like that. You could almost think of it like a very similar to like patron saint in right. Catholicism. Um, just, yeah, it, it's, you can get into the specifics and it's very different, but like a, a similar sort of vibe there. Right. And so the idea of the state asking you to offer prayers to this God, who's just a emperor very recently, it's, it's kind of like, well, okay. If they say that he's, that he's a God, I mean, let's do the usual sacrifice stuff. And here we go. Um, it's, it's not necessarily that big of a deal for most people is what I'm getting at, unless you're Jewish, right? At which point you have not, not just one, but like many, many very specific laws, uh, against not only praying to other gods, but the existence of other gods. Like that's like, that's like 10 commandments. Number one, right. Um, is, is I'm Lord, your God, uh, you'll have no yeah. others before me, right? Like it's, it's up there. It's really, really important yeah. to them. And there are a lot of, um, laws in Jewish religious law about 
praying to false idols, for example, or, um, you know, I'm making offerings to, you know, there's the story of the golden calf with Moses, right? Like there's all this stuff that's like very specifically like, nope, don't pray to anybody else. And this is not, this isn't like when you get further on into Christianity, they're going to be discussions about like whether or not you can have, um, uh, stained glass windows in churches because like is that a false idol that people are praying to or is it merely just like an educational aid or a decoration in a church this isn't like that sort of nuance this is literally somebody putting a false idol in front of you and saying you need to pray to this now and that's going to be tough for them like that's that's it's it's a it's a it's an existential issue for them yeah i think you threw it in my head it's like it's like yeah either they're going to refuse to pay their taxes or whatever they have to do or or i would i'm like yeah like that's something you would go to war over i imagine oh absolutely that's a that's absolutely a possibility and i mean there are there are bigger like roman political things going on around the uh the occupation of uh judea and caesar augustus's enemies don't like it so he really likes the jews and like gives them special dispensations so for example he allows um he allows uh, Jewish citizens to offer prayers to their God on behalf of the emperor rather than praying to an emperor God. And it's kind of like, okay, I guess we can meet in the middle here. It's a little, you know, neither side is completely satisfied, but maybe we can make something work, right? And things work f- sort of for about 100 years until, again, a whole bunch of like very internal politicky stuff we don't need to get into. Uh, in the year 40 CE, there's so much military meddling by the Roman uh, forces in the area that the Jewish population basically goes like, I'm so tired of these Romans. Like, this is not worth it anymore. And there's beginnings of uh, riots led by Jewish nationalists who want to proclaim independence from Rome. And this does not go terribly well for them um you know it it, it switches to like well roman uh, uh, jewish citizens need to actually start going and saying prayers at these temples or you know uh there is a special tax put on jews who want to continue praying at jewish temples so either you can not practice your religion break the law or pay a bunch of money to practice your religion those are your three options right Jewish citizens actually make up a pretty significant amount of the of the population. Like they're up to ten percent of the Roman Empire's population at certain points in time. Like they're not insignificant, but as a group, they start getting this kind of reputation for being like kind of difficult, like kind of rabble rousers. They're they're a little subversive. Like they just you know why won't they just why won't they just go to the temple and say the prayer once a year like everybody else does? Like what's the big deal kind of thing, right? Yeah, I know. But but that, I mean, you know, again, this is like the only group within the empire that has this sort of laws. Like that's just not it, it's not something they really get on a on a fundamental level. Right. These tensions keep escalating. There are a, a series of, of wars. Yeah. First in like 66 to 70 CE or so. The second one about 133 to 136. The second temple, like the Temple of Jerusalem, is destroyed by the Romans in this time period. And um, 
Jews are actually excluded from entering the city of Jerusalem, which is like their holiest site, except for one day a year, which is uh, the anniversary of the day that the temple was destroyed, on which you could pay to get into the city to basically mourn the destruction of the temple. By the way, they did it on the exact same day that the first temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians centuries before. So you could just go in there and commemorate both while you're in there. That is so sadistic on the part of the Romans. Like, holy cow, man. Yeah. Well, not only that, but the proceeds are going directly to the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus in Rome. So all those taxes are just religious donations. They're not even going to the state. They're going directly to Roman religious rites. Right. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, nearly a thousand villages in Judea are raised by Roman legionaries in this in this era. They are looking to ruin the idea of Judea. Uh, the area is renamed to uh, the province of Syria, Palestine in this era. Like they're they're trying to wipe the entire idea out of this area. It's not as though there are no Jewish people left in the Levant after this uh, or after these wars. By the way, the second war is is led by this guy named Simon Bar Kokhba, who is acclaimed as a Messiah by the uh, Jewish people. They believe that he's a savior sent by God to liberate them from the Romans, which is really interesting. Keep in mind the Messiah, like Messiah, is not like a one-off title that was only applied to Jesus of Nazareth. That's a, that's a, it's a title. It's not like a singular person. Yeah. Right. Interestingly enough, these, uh, these military actions against Jews are the first time you start seeing the Roman state begin to differentiate between Jews and Christians. When in the year 95 CE, a uh, group of Christians uh, petition actually to be exempted from the Jewish tax uh, placed on uh, Jewish religious rights, which, which is actually granted by the state. So up until that point, Christianity is really largely uh, people who would have been seen as Jewish by uh, the Roman state. The loss of the temple is like, it, it, it's a pretty big shift in the way Judaism is practiced. Um, specifically in that it's largely a sacrifice based religion, right? Like there's a lot of Ju uh, Jewish laws about going to the temple and making like material sacrifices and Jewish society had largely been, um, ruled by like a priest class and a rabbi class, basically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the priests basically lose all power when the temple is gone because there's no temple for them to control anymore right like that it loses this like centralizing aspect of jewish life and the way that they start practicing their religion is in the synagogues with with rabbis so it's very much a studying and praying uh pivot for the entire religion right right and this is when it, the, 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 the development has already begun but this is where the development of the talmud becomes really uh important spiritual work for the jewish people you know, it becomes a lot less about the ritual, the follow through, the daily life of practicing religion, and a lot more about it becomes a little more cerebral, a little more uh, focused on like a, a spiritual relationship. And I, I'm mainly pointing this out because for a lot of people, as we mentioned before, that sort of Christian lens that people have on the Jewish religion um, tend to think that 
Jewish people have essentially not changed in 2000 years because the most meaningful context they have for it are stories from the Bible that take place before this uh, temple was destroyed, before Jews were scattered across all of Europe. Right. So speaking of early Christianity, the petition to the Roman state isn't the only way that they distinguish themselves from Judaism really early on. There's a few other like, I don't want to call them like tedious or unimportant. Like that's, that's not fair to either faith here, but like from a state perspective, from like a Roman perspective, there's squabbles that they probably wouldn't have cared about and might not have even really understood the significance of. You know, there's there's things like early Christians were talking about whether it would be okay to convert Gentiles because remember, like non-Jewish people, because remember right. Jewish Jewish faith isn't really based on growing the faith, right? It's it's about being a chosen people of God. So that's controversial. There's also discussions of whether the entire Torah still applies. So like what we would call the Old Testament, right? Is that still even important because the temple is gone? And some of the writings of Jesus say that, you know, I've basically rewritten all that old stuff. Um, you know, me coming resets the clock kind of thing. And so there's discussions about whether any of those things even really matter. There's the fact that the early church transitions to Greek as its uh, main language rather than Hebrew, um, which is a, a massive break from uh, Jewish tradition, but allows them to reach a much wider audience because the Greek language is so widely spoken in the Roman world, right? And right. a lot of that only really becomes possible because of that destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of the Jewish people, because it gives both Jews and Christians a kind of flashpoint from which they can discuss how they want their own faiths to be. It's like, well, we have to change. What is that change going to look like? Right? Right. Interesting. Also really interesting is that initially Christianity is considered um, much more subversive than Judaism, mostly because it's seen as a radical offshoot of Judaism. It's like, you've got like, okay, we're finally getting used to the idea of the Jewish faith, but now there's this crazy subgroup of Jews that also believe, you know, all this extra stuff and have these different rituals. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very like from an outsider's perspective, it's very like, you know, who are, who are these new, new people and what are they up to? We don't really understand it. There's also a lot of rumors going around about some of the, um, some of the rites practiced by Christians. Specifically, the Eucharist is really poorly understood. Um, the sacrament of, of ceremonially <laughs> consuming the body and blood of Christ, right? There, the rumors that are going around about this are all like, well, the Christians are a bunch of baby eaters. That is, I, like, I, that's what's believed about them. Yeah, no, like the, consuming the Eucharist is not something that you want to misunderstand. No, no, no. That's... Yeah. And it doesn't help that early Christians are meeting in like small groups in private homes because there aren't, you know, there isn't really a, a church structure, right? Like, so there's this mystique to it as well. And right. there's this concept that like, oh, the Jews threw them out for being too subversive. And like, there's this like danger aspect to it also. And, and this is really a, a, an interesting byproduct of what was intended to be kind of a, a hindrance to Jewish people. But the fact that Judaism was legalized or codified through the collection of taxes means that from the perspective of the Roman empire, they are a legally defined entity that is understood. Whereas the 
Christians are not, right? Like they are not being taxed under these same laws. That means there's something else and that they're not actually like above board necessarily. Okay. What's more, they're also refusing to worship uh, the emperor cult. Right. There are other there are other religions that are are also refusing this. There's uh um Mithraic cult, there's the Sabasians, like there there are other religions, but most of them are so like underground that a lot of them are are not really thought about that much by the Roman government. Um it's mainly the Jews and the Christians. But all of this shifts when you get Emperor Constantine, right? Constantine the Great or Constantine the First. Um, he shifts the balance on all of this by uh, adopting an official state tolerance of Christianity in 313. And he, in fact, hosts one of the first major ecumenical uh, councils for Christians in uh, Nicaea in 325. This is where, like, a whole bunch of the, like, fundamental, like, core beliefs of Christianity are laid out and, like, debated and uh, settled on for the first time. Was was he himself a Christian or he just Ooh. opened the door? You, you didn't mean to ask that question. I know you didn't mean to ask that question. Um, he was probably Christian. Okay. There are a lot of questions about how devout and at what point in his life and even which type of Christianity. Um, that's that's why I got a little nervous when you said that. Um, <laughs> the, the official line is that he more or less converted on his deathbed after being friendly to Christians for his entire life. But there's possibilities that he, he got his Christianity from his mother. And like, it's, it's talking about Constantine's faith is like its own whole thing. So we'll just, we'll just leave it there. Yes. Okay, he was Christian yeah, and, yeah. and move on. Um, what's more important, I think in our story is that he Christianizes the entire Roman empire by making it the state religion. Not not so much himself, but like he lays the groundwork for that, and his predis- or his uh, successors make it the official state religion in 380 C. So, at the same time, Constantine had also been putting a bunch of restrictions on Judaism. So things like outlawing conversion to Judaism, um, putting restrictions on uh, the practice of Jewish religious law. For example, he was um, very against the idea of like, there, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of crimes for which he could be stoned under Jewish law. Right. And he was like, well, we can't have that happening around here where the Romans were not barbarians. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't keep that with a straight face. Um, anyways, uh, he, he had a whole bunch of prohibitions on, certain religious practices um kind of as if they were a much bigger deal than they actually are or actually were at that point in time a lot of those crimes were not necessarily punished in those ways you can see a lot of parallels if you want to go looking for um modern day discussions about uh sharia law um it's kind of like well it's not exactly what people are making it out to be but this is the version of legislating against the the what what I've heard from the Facebook posts kind of thing. Right, right, right. Basically, once Christianity has made the state religion of the Roman Empire, we can basically take for granted that state authorities and the Christian religion are going to align from this point forward in Europe. Um, even when we get as far as like the you know, the, the enlightenment and things like that. Like, yeah, it, it's less clear that like, you know, whatever the Pope says goes or whatever, but like so much of the worldview, um, so many of the power structures will have been snapped together that like, we don't really need to meaningfully distinguish between the two, uh, for a lot of this. 
Right. Uh, the Jewish faith, on the other hand, has been sidelined to a massive extent. So it's not as though no one who is Jewish still lives in the former kingdom of Judea. In fact, they continue to live there for several hundred years until they're finally conquered by uh, the Muslim invasions in the seventh century. There are even a couple of attempts at, you know, uprisings against uh, various powers to proclaim independence. None of them really go anywhere. There's also a significant Jewish population that moves to uh, Babylon, which is going to become like under the Persian Empire, right? Where there was historically a, a relatively large Jewish population because of their enslavement there. But for the purposes of our story, we're going to focus mainly on the group that gets scattered across uh, the continent of Europe and what ends up happening with them. And the truth of it is, basically as soon as the church gets into um, a position of power, they spend more or less the 5th through 7th centuries um, becoming actively anti-Jewish in their theology. You know, once once the Roman Empire fractures, and uh, the Western Roman Empire, I should say, fractures and falls in the, in the West, um, the power structure kind of reverts to a spot where if you were like governor of a Roman province, you were essentially elevated to the level of like a small king kind of thing. Like the, the province was about as far as state power uh, spread, but the church's power continued to be transnational. You continued to have a network of Christian churches that reached back to Rome and were under, to some extent or another, under the authority of the Pope. So you have this sort of homogenization of religious ideals, even when you don't have necessarily a homogenization of um, political or state aims. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Why? So, I mean, I, I assume you're going to move to that now, but like, yeah, like why? So like, you said they've started becoming anti-Jewish. Why? Um, I mean, there is some, that, that's again, a, a question that a lot of people have spent a lot of time on. Um, there are a lot of theories out there. One of them is that there was a level of resentment at the level of um, preference shown under the Roman state uh, to each group. Both sort of felt like they deserved some level or some measure of, of special dispensation. And, you know, when it comes to the Jewish population, it was kind of a, well, we had a, we had something worked out with the Romans and you came in and ruined it for us. And when it came to the Christians, it was kind of like, well, you just left us to be persecuted by the Romans all this time and couldn't let us in on your sweet deal. Now we're going to take what's ours. Right. Neither side comes out looking great on this one. Right. So the resentment kind of cut both ways. Sure. But I mean, again, the resentment is only one aspect of all of this, right? Like, I mean, the, the theology that's being developed in this time period is also struggling with some really it's, it's struggling to um, distinguish itself from Judaism in a much more meaningful way than it had, because you're trying to incorporate, you know, as a Christian leader, as many people as possible. This is a time period in which Christianity kind of makes a lot of concessions to core beliefs of early Christians that we don't really think that carefully about, but really impact the character of the religion. For example, most early Christians were unyielding pacifists, like zero military service, anything. Then you go and you try to convert a bunch of Visigoths whose military service is not only a major part of their uh, culture, it's also like a, a part of their religion to some extent. And it's kind of like, well, do we want more people converted and saved 
or do we want to like remain tied to a very, very literalist, very narrow uh, conception of what people, you know, of the ways that people are allowed to live their lives. And these leaders for better or worse decided that they wanted to save as many people as possible and started making allowances for things like, well, if it's in a war, if it's in a just war, it's probably okay. You know, stuff like that, that you don't really consider too carefully, but like, I don't know, thou shalt not kill. It's like not, it's not super ambiguous. <laughs> just, just, just saying. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's something that the early church leaders were really struggling with how to, uh, how to deal with. Right. You also have things like, well, if you read the Bible, the people who actually put Jesus to death are Romans. It's very unav- like unambiguously the Romans. But like all of these people are also def- descended from Romans and Christianity becomes the Roman state religion. So the, um, the more prevalent uh, gospels that are used uh, tend to be ones that either from the get-go or had things added in later are kind of sympathetic to Roman leaders in the whole in the whole situation and tend to focus on Jewish leaders handing him over to be put to death as the real reason that he was killed. Right. And so there's this image of uh, Jewish people as um, the, the, the term you'll see thrown around sometime as Christ killers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's this idea that, you know, number one, Jewish people have are, are responsible for the death of Christ. Number two, had a good thing going for too long under the Romans and did nothing to help anybody else out. And number three, there's also this idea of the Jewish people being, hmm, I guess stubborn to convert would be a way to put it. Like the early Christians were also Jews, but they listened to the messages of Christ and they became Christians. What's taking the other guys so long? Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. It's just a weird thing because if you were formerly Jewish before becoming a Christian, you understand that like you would understand that, I don't know, the tenet of that religion that like you, you, you don't convert like it is like, like you said, it's like, it's, it's like this club that you're a part of. Right. But, but what I'm saying is that Christians at this point, like especially early on, don't necessarily see the Christianity is not at its very foundation, a break from Judaism, right? It is, at least if you're an early Christian, it is a further revelation in the same tradition. Right, right. And people who refuse to acknowledge this revelation are no longer in covenant with God the way that they used to be. Okay, yeah. So they've, 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 re- they've refused to see the new truth of things and they've been left behind. And there's some level of resentment towards that where it's like, how, why, why would this be so hard for you? We're you know, taking German hordes of barbarians and converting them to the message of Christianity. You guys were like three quarters of the way there. Like what's, right, what's taking right, you so right. long kind of thing. And of course it's not a good you know, justification for anything, but this is a religious minority who's in some certain ways resenting their roots or sorry, a religious majority. I think I said minority. Um, they're, they're resenting their roots in, in a way that's kind of like telling these people that they're obsolete to some extent. Like we've moved beyond you, like keep up or get out. Okay. This is, I don't want to like send us down like a crazy, 
um, diversion here, but like, and, and I'm sure I learned about this. I mean, I grew up in Catholic school, but like the, the early, you know, the group of Jewish people who didn't, as you say, like accept that new revelation, accept that new truth. Why, why not? I guess. Well, I mean, the, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big topic to talk about, yeah. but I mean, the, 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 the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, without this, this is a history podcast, not like a theology podcast, but like, I guess what it comes down to is that not everyone, uh, believed that Jesus of Nazareth was who he said he was. Those who did became Christian and those who didn't remained, uh, Jewish yeah. there. I mean, the, the, the context for the existence of Jesus in the history, historical record, which was a thing I was hoping to avoid, but here we are, is <laughs> not you know, there, there are people who will go in hard on whether or not he existed and, and whether he existed is not really something I think is, is a, is a valid question here. Like it, it, the, the mainstream uh, of historians is going to tell you like, yeah, a man named Jesus of Nazareth existed. The, the effort you'd have to go to, to make this person up out of whole cloth would be so much more than uh, it would be worth necessarily. So in in that context, no, like he he was he was an actual Jewish man. This is not a question. The, the context here is that like he's also not the only person wandering around claiming to be a Messiah in this era, right? We we already talked about another Messiah yeah. coming just forty years later, and that's an, another popular one. The, this this phenomenon of people wandering around, uh, even even people claiming to be. Uh, like people claiming to be messengers from God is not a unique one in this time period. I think that the coalescence between the political strife that was happening at the time, you know, the, the, the nationalist chafing against the Romans and the religious changes that are happening at that point in time, they're not, they're not distinct things. They're not things that are happening in spite of one another, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a time of turmoil and there's a lot of stuff going on. There are a lot of people claiming to have truths that the general population might not necessarily take as true. So, you know, for, for, for us, for, for people raised in a, in a Western context, it's kind of like, well, like, why would they, why would they not go along with that message for a Jewish person around 2000 years ago, the question is kind of more, why would you? Right. Um, right. Because he's not the only one trying this, right? Like it's, it's, it, it's, um, it's only through sort of the, the filter of history and, and, and culture and religion that, um, you would necessarily begin to see the birth of Christianity and, and everything that comes from that as a singular, uh, event that doesn't start becoming singular until quite a bit after uh, the death of Jesus, and that singularity comes from his followers and their their zealotry and their success, not necessarily from uh, how unique his uh, particular circumstances are. When we leave out anything, you know, religious or or mystical from the equation right right um when we're just talking about a man uh walking around preaching new truths that is not necessarily the most distinctive thing to be happening uh you know around the year 30 ce gotcha does that help yeah yeah no that's uh that's a nice way to put it okay um yeah let's let's keep going i mean these um these uh theological arguments against judaism are 
like they're 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 pretty hate filled and they're pretty awful and there's a lot of like further restrictions on Jewish people. They'll continue to like move outside of church controlled states, um, kind of further north and further east to areas that are ruled by pagans, and then Christians would come in afterwards, convert these pagans to Christianity, and the uh, restrictions would come back in place, which just serves to like move the population further around Europe, right? Like it just moves them further and further out. It's do you stay in this place and deal with persecution here? Do you strike out and try somewhere else? Uh, either way, you're no longer in your homeland. Uh, either way, you're a stranger. You know, how do we know that this next one is going to work out any better than this one, right? Right. It, it's it's a very destabilized um, lifestyle, which further helps to promote, by the way, the um, the role of the rabbi in the synagogue in practice, because that's a that's a, a system that can be practiced in fairly small numbers, um, as opposed to a centralized temple for public sacrifice, which is just not a thing you can do when everyone's after you, like sometimes in, in a very like real violent manner. These restrictions sometimes led to further revolts by Jewish citizens, which basically justified further restrictions by the majority Christian leaders, you know, see they're acting up, we have to put them under further lockdown. And it becomes like a chicken and egg kind of thing. Any injustice being done causing further unrest and any further unrest causing, you know, more injustices. Yeah. Yeah. I think that lays down a pretty good foundation. So why don't we take a break there? And then when we come back, we'll talk about moving into the medieval period proper and uh, see how um, a bunch of different factors serve to even further marginalize and, and physically separate the Jewish population from the rest of Europe. Yeah, let's do it. Back on HI 101 here with Paul McGowan. Hello. And we've been talking about like a lot about the early Christian church and not a whole lot about Judaism. But I think that's like apropos because that's kind of what we want to focus on is the relationship between the rest of Europe and the Jewish experience within that society. So, um, you know, if, if that's where the focus needs to be to get that lay of the land, I, I think that's the way we need to go in order to understand what's going to be coming. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I mean, I assume it's not the Jewish people oppressing themselves for centuries. Like, I, well, you know, exactly, I assume it's, yeah. yeah. So it's, 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 I, I mean, that's the part that's so hard to wrap my head around. Even as we're talking about this, as you're talking about, you know, the, the Christian church kind of becoming antagonistic toward the Jewish people. And it's, and it's, and it's still hard to understand, to totally process like, like why, I mean, there are a bunch of these micro reasons that, that make sense on a certain timeline, but I, but I mm -hmm. think that kind of overarching hostility still doesn't quite make sense to me. Yeah. Well, two big things are going to happen in the medieval period that are going to like very much crystallize some things that are kind of like up until now have been sort of trends that you're sort of seeing under the surface. But like, you know, so far in the story, like Jewish people are living in the same villages as Christian people in Europe. Like these these sort of proto-European countries are, I, I suppose, for lack of a better term, religiously integrated. Um, and it's sort of a period of Christianity where, as we talked about, it's almost more important to pump up the numbers than it is necessarily to stay extremely theologically consistent. Yeah. 
And that's where you get these stories of like, you know, like the conversion of like Ireland, where it turns out that all these like Celtic shrines and, and their their deities are, you know, kind of re skinned, I guess, as Catholic uh, saints and stuff like that. Right. So it just sort of like lays the veneer of, of Christianity over top of it. And people kind of in a lot of ways go about their lives the same way that they had. Right. There's there's a lot of those stories. That's that's where you get all the like, oh, you know, Easter used to be a pagan holiday, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, all of that stuff comes from that early, you know, the, the post fall of the Roman Empire period, that like fifth to ninth centuries kind of thing. OK, then a, a few different things happen. The first of which is that the the church starts making a little bit more of a play for um secular power to some extent you'll see that in for example like charlemagne right like the 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 creation of the holy roman empire where like the pope basically gives themselves the the power or vests the power uh in themselves to crown the emperor of the holy roman empire and it's kind of like well I, I thought you guys were supposed to be concerned with like religious stuff but they're kind of getting their toes wet in in some actual like secular politics stuff right right that's going to inevitably see some like influence on secular laws by the Christian church in ways that haven't always been there. I mean, obviously leaders all being Christian uh, plays a significant part in that, but now you've got the church kind of leaning on people a little bit, putting a little bit of pressure on people with that comes a bit of a standardization of Christianity you get more of these like councils, like crystallizing certain aspects of the theology, getting everybody on the same page. And what they start realizing is that not everybody does Christianity exactly the same way. And this is cause for concern. And the way you'll sometimes see it put is that, you know, this is an era where heresies start cropping up as if people hadn't been doing Christianity their own way the entire time kind of thing. Right. Right. But you do, you know, after the 8th century or so, you start seeing some fairly major um, splits in Christianity that the, uh, you know, that the majority see as heretical. Uh, the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Cathars, uh, the Hussites, like these are all like major heresies that like thousands and thousands of people devoutly believe in that are straying from mainline christianity on some core beliefs a lot of them are um what's known as dualist uh it's this idea that there is basically like a a spiritual world and a and a physical world and that the physical world is inherently corrupt and that the spiritual world is inherently uh good and that even like the like your existence in the physical world is itself a corrupting force which kind of, I mean, which kind of still sounds like Christianity on some level. No, but yeah, it, it does. It does. But then you get into things like, well, if the world is inherently evil, then could God have been the one that created it? Or is there a oh, okay. second, uh, uh, you know, divine force, sometimes a second God, sometimes the devil that actually created all of physical existence and is physical existence just a trick to bring us further away from God. And like, it gets into this really like, Oh my God, really interesting stuff. Yeah. But stuff that the church is like, uh, uh, nope. Yeah, I know. I can see. Okay. That's fair yeah 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 it's it, again interesting but not really the topic of, of of today's stuff but what you get along with some of these heresies is like a lot of talk about 
what the people involved in the heresies actually believe. And like with so many other things, there's a lot of exaggeration and demonization, right? Right. What's really interesting about it is that a lot of the things that um, early Christians had been accused of start being attributed to specifically the people in the heresies. So, for example, eating babies, different blood rites, uh, sexual magic, for example, um, like all of these things that they're holding up to be like, to see how see how deviant these people are like what what are they up to that's crazy when in reality somebody who's you know living their life as part of one of these heresies is very 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 similar to basically everyone else in uh europe uh, except for some eccentricities in their beliefs right like their their day-to-day isn't that much different they just happen to hold some different beliefs but you know it's always easier to attack people who seem way out there there's some collateral damage there in terms of where these beliefs are attributed to. It starts kind of getting, you know, kind of leaking into stories about anybody who's not Christian, which includes Jewish people. And so you get this idea of, right. um, it's known as the, it's known as the blood libel. There's a, uh, there's a, uh, story going around that actually specifically the, um, uh, matzah is made, with the blood of gentile babies um because they're celebrating passover right in the story of passover you know in the the flight out of egypt um the 10th plague is god killing the the firstborn son of every egyptian right, right? and they had to right. you know the jewish people had to put the blood over their their uh, uh wind or their their door frames sorry to mark their houses as safe from god's wrath hence passover because he passed over those homes and there's this idea that to celebrate the killing of all these gentile firstborn children that the jews were actually eating the blood of male babies which is horrifying and completely untrue but once you sort of put those rumors out into the world, like, what are you supposed to do with them, right? Right. They take on a life of their own. And so all these ideas that are kind of leveled at um, heresies also kind of get leveled at the Jews. It doesn't help that certain specific heresies also have um, particular uh, Jewish focuses. For example, the Albigensians believed that um, uh, Jewish religious rites were superior to Christian ones that we, you know, Christians needed to return to the Bible for guidance on how best to worship God, which isn't like the craziest idea I've ever heard, but the association with Jews is going to be a real problem for their, the, the optics of their movement. Right. There's also, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this overarching fear that the Jews were out there converting Christians, which is really not something that's well documented there's some there's some circumstantial evidence that says that they might have been converting some people but it's not a core tenet of their beliefs not the way that evangelism is baked right into the christian gospel right like there's this there's this uh specific um order from from jesus to go out and spread uh his good news and and it's kind of like oh the christians were taking that very very seriously um it's a very different conception of like what your faith is supposed to be and what the uh, mechanisms of your space of your faith are supposed to be. And these Christians who are very convert happy are assuming that Jewish people are also looking for converts and, and sort of placing their fears on them based off of very little 
uh, good evidence. Right. Were they were they worried that 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 Jewish people were going to like convert people before they got to them, or were they worried that Jewish people were converting Christians to Judaism? The second one worried that they were converting okay. Christians okay. to Judaism. In general, as I said, people you know Jewish people were still mainly living in the same communities as as Christians. There is some friction between them. Uh, in terms of like which religious uh, holidays they're celebrating, um, the difference between the the you know Jewish Sabbath and the uh, or Shabbat I should say I suppose and and um, uh, the Christian Sabbath, all of that stuff sort of it's more just like oh it's that family over there that doesn't do the same things as we do. There's also yeah. a very specific practical issue that causes some tension, which is the matter of money lending. This is a very, very common anti-Semitic trope, um, or is the source of one, right? Yeah. What it comes down to is that in the Bible, there are very uh, specific religious prohibitions against loaning money uh, and charging interest for it. This prohibition applies to Jewish people, and it applies to Christians, and it was something that was taken very, very seriously. However, there is... Without getting too deep into the mechanics, there is essentially a loophole that allows uh, Jews to loan money at an interest rate to non-Jewish people. And so for, you know, like a functioning banking system, you kind of need interest rates a little bit. Yeah. And because they have no religious compunction against loaning money to non-Jewish people, many Jewish people were acting as bankers. Uh, or, or proto-bankers in this period of time. They would loan money to Christians who needed it, and they would have it paid back plus a little bit of interest. And, you know, anything financial, man, it's going to cause tensions, right? So there's this double-edged sword of like, well, they're very useful to have because that's the only place you can get money when you're out of money. But also, why do they want us to pay them back the money so bad? You know, like, if you can't make the payment, all of a sudden you resent the person who's asking for the payment, right? Right. So then just like to like, so they were not Christian people acting as bankers? No. Wow. No, you wouldn't even really see like the modern banking system uh, come up until like, well, the Crusades essentially, like the Templars are, are uh, a major for, uh, source of the original like centralized banking systems the idea that you could like deposit it at one branch and withdraw at another one that's something that the knights templar invented essentially but even in terms of like lending lending money that's not something you would see christians doing no i mean you could see lending money to a family member and and expecting right, right. to get back the exact same amount same as you might do today but that's not the same as like taking a line of credit right yeah yeah I mean, keep in mind that society in general is a lot less dependent on like fiat currency, right? Like there's a lot, there's a lot less need for credit in, you know, the 900s than we see today. So it's, it's not as much of a holdup as you might think, but you're also seeing Jews who have, uh, prohibitions on how much land that they can own, um, on which land they can own sometimes. So a lot of times they're not really doing well as farmers because all the best farmland is going to christians one way or another right. you're not necessarily seeing them take a place in the top echelons of society because uh no state would allow say a noble or, or a um 
a royal, heaven forbid, marry anybody who is Jewish. So in general, Jewish people are going to sort of operate in what's a, a fairly small class, but like a, a, a newly powerful class, which is the, the mercantile class, right? You have traders, you have people loaning money, you have like you have a lot of like what we might call today like middle class jobs going to Jewish people. And they tend to be the kind of jobs that people don't always appreciate a whole lot, right? Like even even today, um, you know, Jewish people would have a, a reputation as being uh, well learned, but like, so, you know, things like, I don't know, medicine, for example, uh, or even law to some extent. But, you know, people don't like lawyers and a lot of people kind of hate doctors too. <laughs> like it's, it's yeah. but for a lot of the yeah. same reasons, right? Like, because some of the, you know, when you need them, you need them. But like when you don't want them around, they're, they're bringing you bad news kind of thing. Right. 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 And that's just sort of the place in society that they tended to be able to make the best living for themselves in general. Now that's a, that's a vast oversimplification of the, the situation. Right. But that's, it gives you a bit of an idea of the spot in European culture they're occupying. Right. So they're, they're, they're not necessarily overtly hated, but they're certainly not given the same opportunities as Christians are very deliberately. And right. you might, you might not have an issue with uh, your Jewish neighbors, but you might not necessarily consider them the same level of part of your community as you might uh, people that you see at church every day. Sure. Yeah. Uh, then, <laughs> then, and then the crusades come along. The crusades begin, uh, well, they're first called for in 1095 and it's very much like a, it's for political gain. It's very much like a let's get some money, let's get some land kind of thing. It's a it's a much more complicated uh, scenario than that. There's also some like flexing on the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has just recently split off from the the Catholic Church. There's like you know issues with the um, uh, the Byzantine Empire, which are the the remnants of uh, uh, of the the old Roman Empire, right? Like it never really fell in the East. It just became Greek and Orthodox Christian and uh, a lot more complicated. But the point being, the, the rhetoric that's used when the crusade is called for is very much like a, we need to take back the Holy Land for the Christians. Which, what did they consider the Holy Land? Jerusalem, Judea. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, they see it as very much their their religious heritage. And the idea of specifically Muslims holding power in that region is just intolerable for these people. And so there's this idea of like, well, well, we'll take it back and it should be in the hands of Christians because there are Christian holy sites in Jerusalem as well, right? Yeah. They, they, they haven't really had proper access to those sites um, since the Muslim conquests. And they would like to have that access and also maybe some of their treasure and military power. Um, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on there. Right. But yeah. in all of this rhetoric around taking back the Holy land and there's a, there's a, there's a tiny little mental gymnastic that you need to do there, which is, well, what do you mean take back? It's never been Christian territory. It was Jewish territory before it was uh, Muslim territory. So what do you mean take back? And that's where you get into this rhetoric again of, people having killed Christ and people having denied Christ. And that's sort of the justification behind all of it, right? 
the way that the Crusades work is everybody gets a couple of years to get together as many soldiers as possible to devote. And basically, like, the more soldiers you can pull together, uh, the more devout you are is kind of the, you know, the optics of the whole thing. Right. A lot of these armies get themselves whipped up into a frenzy, like a very, like, devout frenzy. Like, it is it is very, as much as the Pope is making some political moves, these crusaders who are going like they devoutly believe in the divinity of what they're doing here and in the process of getting themselves whipped up a lot of them through like no direction through like this is this is an independently uh, emergent phenomenon a lot of them go and attack local jewish community members like with violence armed knights attack local right community jewish community members because they're steeped in this rhetoric right of 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 how the the holy land has fallen away from uh righteous hands and and part of that is all of this rhetoric of what you know what what the jewish people have done wrong against christianity and well i mean we've got the weapons and we've got a little while to get ready do we really want those people as part of our community anymore yeah it's it's yeah when you said that my reaction was like it's obviously extremely shitty but also i was like yeah like that's not surprising given 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 like why they are together and training together and what they're about to go do it's not surprising that they would that they would kind of take that leap Mm -hmm. yeah for sure and i mean it's not always just like straight up slaughter although sometimes it is that sometimes it's forced conversions sometimes they're basically holding people at sword point and forcing them to be baptized um which is also not good um and the people who are being subjected to this have like they 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 don't want this some of them pretend to convert and then recant later there's a whole thing where like the pope basically issues a papal bull saying like what are you guys doing we need to be fighting over there stop stop killing your neighbors just because they have to be jewish but it doesn't really take the edge off uh the pope puts out a bull saying that like anyone who's converted at sword point uh, it's not a true conversion and they can t- continue to practice their Jewish faith. But like, it's such a grassroots reaction to all of this that it's not really taking the edge off that much. And and just like, cause I'm, cause I mean, I'm not, I'm not obviously like any kind of a history, but like the crusades were like, that was under the direction of the Pope, I assume. Like the, that was a, yeah, that's right. He he would have sent out uh, messages to all the major heads of state and basically say, I'm, I'm declaring a crusade. Uh, it's time for all of Christendom to take back the Holy Land. Um, you know, how how can you help? And right. to say like, no, I can't spare soldiers for that would be, you know, it's it's a it's soft power, but like it's very potent soft power, right? Like you can't just say like, no, I'm not going to listen to the Pope. He's the Pope. Yeah, you got to do it. So yeah, it is directed by the Pope, but like again, it's all led by these local bands. It's not like one single like unified fighting force. It's it's these little um, expeditions that are led by local lords kind of thing and whatever pe- peasants they can drum up. Yeah. A lot of Jewish people would commit suicide rather than uh, be uh, converted. That's not necessarily counted among the, the murders when people are tallying things up, but man, it's close. You know, these, these attacks really, really highlight to Jewish people that they are not going to really ever be uh, a, a complete part of these communities and what you start seeing is a withdrawal you know on both sides there's there's a there's a 
there's a there's a push and a pull here. So you know, for future future uh, crusades would often also begin that same way. Let's just go slaughter a bunch of local Jews to get get in the spirit. I'm not sure exactly, but th- this is a very common thing in this era. So Jewish people started moving further and further away into their own communities where they felt that they could defend each other, hopefully be a little bit more safe, hopefully be a little bit less obvious a target to these crusaders who are getting themselves warmed up. And, you know, European towns like across Europe were making new laws, driving uh, Jews out of the towns, basically saying, well, we don't want you around anymore. You're the enemy. It turns out when they got to uh, the Levant and were uh, fighting, you know, trying to take Jerusalem, which they managed to do in the First Crusade. Um, it's not just Muslims who are defending. It's also Jews who had never actually left. Remember, they, they you know, they, they did not all leave under under Rome. And for a lot of them, they're defending their homeland against an outside invader. Of course, they're going to stand against them. Why wouldn't they? It's an invading force. Yeah. Okay, stupid question. Stupid question again. Like, what? So you're saying that Jerusalem was defended by by Jewish people and by by Muslims. Like, mm-hmm. were what was the relation? Was there the same antagonism between Muslims and Jewish people, or or not as um, much? Yeah, it's again a really complicated one that I wasn't hoping to get too deep into. But I, I would say that in <laughs> general, what you what, what you see in this time period would be very similar to what you would have seen between uh, the Jews and Romans in that they were mostly allowed to live their life, but would often have to uh, pay a special tax to practice. Um, Muslims of this era saw both Christians and Jews as other people of the book is, is the term that they would use. Um, They, they see very much a a continuity between Judaism, Christianity and Islam. There are, you know, obviously significant differences, but there is no um, impetus to, convert either jews or christians by force the way you might see uh for uh other religions so they're again they're not they're not completely emancipated within islamic society but they they do enjoy a, a certain level of security they can at least um expect not to be forcibly uh converted um they right. just don't have all the same rights as as a, a muslim citizen so, yeah, I mean, we, we started talking about clustering in, in their own communities. You get uh, um, forcible expulsion from some cities. We mentioned that. Restrictions placed on land ownership. We mentioned that as well. Um, really what this comes down to is like this this idea of ghettoization, right? Like the, the idea yeah. of the, the Jewish quarter. The, the word ghetto is, is, is originally rooted in this process of a section of town or even outside of town sometimes that is the only place that Jewish citizens are allowed to settle. You move to a new city and you are Jewish, that is where you get to go make a living. And it's not generally the nicest part of town. The lies about blood libel really spread in this time. It's really kind of tied to all of this uh, heresy stuff that we're dealing with. This is an era where rumors about heretics and what they do really comes to a a fever pitch. Um, and it's going to kind of climb over the next couple of hundred years, basically up until the, the Lutheran Reformation in the early 1500s, right? You get all these kind of uh, outbursts of massacres of Jewish people. Um, uh, there, was a, there was a significant one in uh, Trent 
where uh, a two-year-old named Simon disappeared. And without any evidence whatsoever, 15 Jews were burned at the stake because it was believed that they had kidnapped him and used him in some sort of religious ritual. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really horrible stuff. This is an era where uh, you start getting a lot of scapegoating, I, I guess, is the best term for it. What, what you see is, is as uh, Jewish people are physically removed from the rest of society in these, in these small areas, the ability for Christian Europeans to other them, to make them like part of an outgroup, becomes easier and easier, right? And right. when you have that dynamic, all of a sudden it's much easier to blame that other group for any problems that come up whether or not there's any evidence for it or not. And, you know, you start getting stuff like um, there, there would be a bell that rang at sunset and any Jews that were left inside certain cities would be uh, arrested. Like you had to be out of the city before sundown. So like it's, it's, it's very, very prohibitive stuff. Um, very much yeah. uh, made into second class citizens. And it's all from this very like grassroots idea of anti-Semitism that in a lot of ways is built on like early church foundations, but comes to a head under the Crusades and mixed in with the general fears of heresy sort of elevate this kind of like, ah, they're not much like us and we kind of wish they would convert to like what is going on when Jewish people practice their religion? Is Judaism demonic is like a very serious question that's being asked at this point in time, right? The Christian worldview in this period is it's so it's so um, overarching that even groups of people who are not Christian are very much interpreted through a Christian lens. I took a very, very interesting course in university called Jews, Witches, and Heretics, which kind of sums up uh, the way in which those three groups of people were very similarly treated by most Christian Europeans. They're kind of seen as in the same category. Right. So I remember, you know, being, I went to a Catholic high school and, you know, reading, I guess at the time it would have been Pope John Paul II's official position on, or the church's official position on like other religions. Mm -hmm. um, what, I mean, at the time, what was, they did the, did the church have an official position on Judaism? Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, I'm not sure specifically what it would be at this point in time. In general, the, the church would frown on violence against Jewish people for the sake of being Jewish. Um, however, the theology would still place blame for the death of Christ on the Jewish people. Wow. Which is fairly contradictory. But the other thing here is that Europe at this point in time is very, very fractured. And yes, they listen to the Pope, but a lot of the religious violence that's happening is very local especially in what would become Germany, because the Holy Roman Empire is this fractured mass of these little principalities. There's two, three hundred uh, different states in modern day Germany at certain times. And each one's ruled by this little, you know, this little leader who, who has a few square kilometers of land and, and, you know, a few thousand peasants or whatever. And that's it. And, yeah, you know, there's a lot of like vying for position and like, marriage politics and all of this stuff and all of that plays into this sort of like dynamic where if you are a jewish person and it's kind of like oh you hear that in this place 
he's actually pretty friendly to the Jews because he sees some, you know, some merit to uh, having access to financial services or something like that. Then a bunch of people will flock there and then like his successor will actually hate the Jews and drive them all out and take their fortunes in the process. And then you'll be left destitute. And like, there's a lot of that level of flux where there's very little certainty for any Jewish community at this point in time. You might do better in a more centralized nation like France, but then again, you could also have the entire country of France just expel all of the Jews, which uh, they do in 1394, and then all of France is off, off limits to you. England did the same in 1290. Austria did the same in 1421. Um, it's it's very like it's it's a very uncertain way of living. Yeah, I, I mentioned I mentioned witchcraft. A lot of the you know witch trials that come in, sort of uh, in this period, are are also linked to Judaism, right? Like it's a lot of the same rumors about eating babies and demonic rites and all of this stuff that really ironically is coming from early Christian uh, uh, stereotypes. But it's it's all of this very othering language that's applied to any group that they don't understand, with slim to none evidence right like that's not the practice of judaism never has been they don't want to kidnap christian babies they're you know the the christians hate them enough as it is um they they don't want to they, they just want to live their lives they want to be left alone they don't want to be slaughtered for no reason by a bunch of crusaders but that's not how the majority of europeans are seeing them right in the 14th century you get the black death millions of europeans die uh kills over a third of the population of europe the Black Death is a singularly disruptive force in European history. I mean, how, how could it not be, right? Yeah. Something that you should know about the Black Death is that it is true that some Jewish communities fared better during the Black Death than their European Christian counterparts. There have been lots of reasons proposed for this. Everything from dumb luck to they are segregated from the rest of the community. So just because it was sweeping through the town doesn't necessarily mean it moved into the Jewish quarter. It could right. uh, have something to do with um, there. There are a lot of cleansing rituals that are involved in daily practice of, of Judaism that, um, you know, Europe wasn't exactly the cleanest place during the Black Plague that may have prevented some of the transmission of disease. It's hard to say. Um, but it's true that they did better. And in this sort of climate of, number one, fear of a, an unknown killer. I mean, this is before germ theory of disease. Nobody knows why everyone's dying. A, a strong a strong proponent for an explanation is a plague from God. You're already scared enough. And then you've got this climate of like, there are heretics among us. There are demons among us. The idea of like demonic presence in europe at this point in time is like a very tangible thing like it's not yeah. it's not sort of this like conceptual it's like there are actual literal demons uh waiting for you to trip up at any move and they will possess you and uh steal your soul for, for the devil like it's not there's no there's no metaphor involved here and then you look over and there's this other community right beside you and people seem a lot healthier than you and your family and your community and people start connecting dots in ways that they don't actually have any evidence for. They start yeah. assuming that uh, that the Jews are responsible for the Black Death. There is a very common 
stereotype or, or rumor at, started at this point in time that I, I'm sure you've heard of, which is uh, poisoning the well. It's this idea that um, Jews would sneak into the, the town during the day and, and, and drop poison in the, in the town well, and that's what was making everybody sick and killing them. Of course we know that's not what's happening. It's, it's you know, the, the, the bubonic plague is still around. Like, it's a, it's a bacterial infection. It's, you know, with, with antibiotics, I mean, it's still serious, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's, it's treatable. It's a disease like any other. But when you have absolutely no idea what's causing it, you're looking for an explanation. And that was a handy one for them. It's wrong, but it's handy obviously heard that phrase before i had no idea where it came from yeah that's that's the origin is is the black death and as with so many of these other things it turns into massacres of jewish communities people would lash out they would uh they would kill them they would uh, disperse communities uh 900 people are killed in strasbourg germany over this it continues to force this wedge in between jews in europe and the communities that they are you know increasingly less and less a part of because they're not welcome yeah when you i mean i'm trying to picture this and and there are all of these massacres happening and and all of these jewish communities are spread out across europe like does history have a sense of like the numbers like what percentage of the european population were jewish oh i don't have them in front of me i'm, I'm this is this is one of those things that's that's fairly well uh studied um, I think I saw somewhere, I'm, I'm remembering numbers, so they're not going to be accurate, but based on an extrapolation of like the Jewish population under the Roman Empire and the current population of Europe today, uh, there should be as many as 200 million Jewish people in Europe today. And there's no, there's nowhere near that. It's, uh, it, it's a few million people. Um, and, and that was used as a, I'll look it up and I'll pop it in the show notes. I, I shouldn't have even bothered without the actual numbers in front of me. But the, the point is less that, you know, I, I brought up Strasbourg as being 900 people because that was a, a, a large singular event. And there, there's this part of you when you're kind of primed to talk about, well, especially to talk about anti-Semitism, given the, given the Holocaust as, as context, you're kind of primed to go like only 900 people, like that's it kind of thing. Um, but the point is that that's like one city in, in Europe and this was happening to, you know, it was happening to every town here and there across all of Europe where no, the numbers weren't big, but it's like, it's 10 here and it's eight there and it's a dozen there. And like, those are whole families that just, they're all killed. Yeah, no, it's more, I mean, it's more, it's more thinking about, I just like, just guessing that like, I mean, the, the, the smaller, your group of people like the easier you are to oppress i guess and i'm just like mm -hmm. it's just it's hard to i don't know man. like it, it really is on some level it's hard to it's hard to hear i mean like even beyond even if it's not 900 people even if it's what was it the 12 or 14 people burned at the stake in that one instance it's mm -hmm. it's like yeah you, you like you wonder how like how people got away with it and and my only th i mean that's what led me to the thought was like was like well they couldn't have, like they must have been a minority was kind of my thought process mm -hmm. yeah i mean they they were they were certainly a minority but uh, yeah it, it's it's i don't know it's it's hard that's the thing about really systemic things like this is that it's not 
all a discrete event where everybody's kind of cataloged and we have clear numbers and things like this. This is just a casual part of life. And it's, it's a, it's not, it's not even an ongoing part of life. It's a sporadic part of life, right? Like that's what, that's what makes it truly insidious. Isn't that like, this is happening year after year after year. It's that a community could live, you know, in in a place for 150 years and come to treat the people around them as, as part of their community because they are. And then, you know, one year there's a famine or one year there's a, an outbreak of plague and, or, or, or whatever. And, you know, one, one year a child goes missing and all of a sudden these people that you think are part of your community, they turn on you as if, yeah. uh, as if they don't know you, as if you're, you're an enemy, as if you're diabolical. And, and that's, I think, um, the, the most, insidious part of of this this kind of chapter of anti-semitism it's this like well something's gone wrong who can we take it out on who can we blame for it right there's inquisitions uh established beginning in the 12th century to deal with uh uh heresies they're expanded in you know in the wake of the reformation when the catholic church is trying to get a handle on what exactly went wrong the people wanted to split away they're um they're especially strong in in spain the spanish inquisition everybody's heard of uh to deal with the uh sort of the aftermath of um pushing the the muslims out of the iberian peninsula that one's especially insidious because technically the refer- or the uh the inquisitions don't have any jurisdiction over Jewish people, they're they're for Christians, right? But what had happened uh, during the Reconquista is that a lot of Jewish people, along with Muslim people, were forced to convert to Christianity at, at sword point. And what the Spanish Inquisition liked to do was to test these people and find out if they'd actually converted or whether they were something known as crypto-Jews, which were people who had prevent, uh, pretended to convert but kept living their lives as Jewish people. And so that's how they kind of exerted uh, control over the religious life of Jews in Spain and and elsewhere in in Europe. But again, tying it to heresy and tying it to witchcraft is is very, very common. Not everywhere in Europe is this bad. Specifically, there's one place that is, if not always friendly to Jews, then at least a lot friendlier than most places, and that's Poland. In 1102... Boleslav III, king of Poland, saw the level of economic potential that lay within the small but growing Jewish community in his borders and decided to encode the allowed existence of Jews within Poland. He basically noticed that one of the few benefits of being scattered across Europe the way that the Jewish people were is that because so many of them were working in trade, most of them were trading with other Jews across Europe, right? They weren't necessarily trading with Christians except very locally. Right. And so you kind of got this network across Europe of um, Jewish traders working with other Jewish traders. And he basically went, well, it would be insane to just drive out all of the Jews all of a sudden just because, you know, you're worried about this or that, because you're going to collapse the economy of your country when you do that. So yeah. he took a very, very tolerant stance on uh, Jewish subjects, and it became such an important backbone of Polish uh, identity and economy that in 1264, th- this is 30 years before England goes and 
expels all of their Jews. In 1264, uh, the Polish crown fully emancipates its Jewish citizens, which means that there are no restrictions on uh, civic participation other than what would be put on literally everybody. So, I mean, it's not as though they got, you know, universal suffrage or anything like that, but you yeah. know, there's no special Jewish taxes put on. There are no uh, restrictions on purchasing land. There are no requirements for Jews to live within a Jewish quarter or anything like that. They are allowed to live just as any other citizen would live. And this understanding of, of Poland as sort of a haven for Jewish people is, you know, obviously the word spreads fast. And by the mid 16th century, basically every time something comes up where the Jews are expelled from one place, they just go to Poland because they know they'll be safe there. Right. I know the answer to this changes, but like at that time, did other countries, I don't know, like think of like, like look down on Poland or for that? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, it's seen as very much like an internal decision to make. Poland is also like, we, we don't really think of it this way that much um, because of the last, say, three centuries of, of history. Poland was an extremely powerful military force in Europe at this point in time. Um, you can look down on it if you want. They're still going to beat you at war. So it's it's right. not really something they're too concerned about necessarily. Okay. That being said, you know, Poland is so close to Russia at this point, And this is early enough that there's not a lot of back and forth between Russia and the rest of uh, Europe that for, for a lot of people, Europe kind of ends at like the easternmost borders of like Austria and things like that. You start getting into like the Balkans right. and it's iffy whether or not it's still European. It's very much like Western Europe centric. Okay. So yeah, by by the mid 16th century, based on all these other expulsions, based on uh, the ability of just like the population to just live their lives in Poland, um, as many as 75% of the world's Jews may have lived in Poland by, you know, 1550 or so. Wow. Yeah, because I mean, they're getting yeah. killed everywhere else. They're getting dro driven out of everywhere else. It's, it's hard to, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. one thing to think of this as like a, an issue of slaughter. Um, it's another thing to just think of the issue of just like transience, right? Like the idea of not having a settled place where you can like plan long term, you know, um, pass down property, it, it, like little things like that matter so much in the long term yeah, yeah. that they're that, that, that are just not present for these people. So even outside of Poland, there are still like economic opportunities that come up for for Jewish people, especially people with a lot of wealth that they've managed to accumulate through all of this trade that we've been talking about. Um, there's this idea of, here, here's another uh, term you might have heard of before, but there's something called the court Jew. Have you heard this term before? No, never. It's this sort of hybrid court role in a lot of smaller uh, principalities where you would have a, a Jewish person who is kind of filling a role of like state financier, but also diplomat, but also advisor, but also like supplier for like the state or the military. It's kind of, it's the person that you go to where it's kind of like, hey, we're running low on grain. Where can we get the best price for grain for the nation or, you know, things like that, right? Right. And so you did have some 
Jewish people who are gaining some societal um, status through roles like this or, or associated ones where it generally it's, it's mercantile in nature, right? Like they're accumulating wealth. There is still, you know, a little bit of a prohibition on usury or, or, or money lending uh, among the Christian world. So a lot of the early bank fortunes are Jewish families. But there is also still that like volatility outside of Poland, right? Where it can be seen like, it can be seen as a really prudent move that, you know, say you're really, really in debt to Jewish bankers and you're a small principality, you could just make a law banning Jewish people and then who's going to collect on it. Oh, man. It's it's a move you can make. It's dirty, but it's a move you can make. And what's more, because they're not Christian, it's seen as like maybe not as dirty as if you were doing this to a fellow Christian. There is that like outsider ideal, I guess, this idea that they're not quite uh, members of your community. Yeah. In 1648, there's something known as the Kmelnitsky Uprising in uh, Poland, or I guess now Poland-Lithuania. And without getting into like some very complicated regional politics, essentially what's happening is that a, a group called the Cossacks, out of what's now Ukraine, who are kind of like old Russian nobility, like very conservative, very like orthodox Christian, essentially launch a campaign to declare independence against Poland-Lithuania. These people dislike Jews more than most. Uh, the uprising is extremely devastating to the, to the Jewish community in Poland. Three million people were killed in all of Poland-Lithuania under these military action, including between 100 and 200,000 Jews. And what you see with that is kind of a shattering of that like safe haven that they've had all of this time, right? Yeah. And an exodus back into Western Europe. Poland has a bad run of things after the mid 17th century. They tend to kind of, um, well, it, it all, it all culminates in what's known as the partition of Poland at the end of the 18th century, where the state of Poland essentially ceases to exist. It's divided between Prussia, Austro-Hungary and Russia. And any remaining Jewish population uh, in Poland at that point in time is divided between those three powers, none of whom are particularly friendly to Jews. You know, in, in Prussia or Austro-Hungary, you would see a lot of poll taxes, you would see a lot of uh, marriage limits, you would see land ownership limits, like a lot of those things that they'd managed to actually build a life for themselves with in Poland would be stripped away. But it would be nothing compared to what would happen in Russia. Russia has traditionally been much more authoritarian, autocratic, centralized, conservative than the rest of Europe. And it really showed in their treatment of their new Jewish population. They didn't quite know what to do with them. And this would range from basically not allowing them to leave a very narrow band of the country uh, in terms of settlement to periodic slaughters. They would also, you know, expel people, restrict movement, kind of ad hoc over the next several hundred years. Uh, Russia was a bad place to be Jewish. Not that there were many good ones at this point. Yeah, I was going to say there's not really. The early modern period and like the Enlightenment did bring some sort of an end to 
some of these forms of anti-Semitism. It was kind of like a, I mean, there was an anti-religious bent overall, but the way that that manifested in terms of Jewish people tended to be along a sort of, let's just get rid of all religions kind of thing. Let's look at a uh, civic life divorced from religious belief. And you would see a lot of nations start allowing uh, Jews back in that had previously expelled them. England was actually the last to let them back in in 1654. Um, But local bans would still persist. Like those little Holy Roman Empire states would still every once in a while just expel all their Jews. Was it was it a case of letting them back in, but then those restrictions or those taxes still being in place? In, in in most cases, yeah. Now, in terms of like the day to day persecution, it would generally be a little bit better in that they weren't that like convenient scapegoat around the corner anymore. But they were also very divorced from a sense of community in that these are people that don't have roots in that specific place going back hundreds of years. So it's kind of a, it's, it's not a firm win, but it's not a firm lose either. Yeah. There's divisions in thinking, uh, among, uh, the Jewish people around kind of parallel to the enlightenment as well, where there's kind of a sense of like, we can't keep going like this. And there's basically three, schools of thought that that come out of this period in terms of like a path forward for the jewish people one is is basically staying the course as it is uh which would basically which would result in sort of um what we would call the traditional orthodox branch of judaism you would also have the uh, haskalah which is a group that promotes scientific learning as well as like community assimilation. So this idea of like, we don't need to continue like distinguishing ourselves from everybody else. That's not doing us any favors. Why can't we embrace this movement of, you know, scientism, of enlightenment, of uh, liberalism, individualism, and continue to practice our faith, but in a way that fits in with a secular society that's going to result in kind of the reform and conservative branches of of Judaism today. And there's also a a third branch, which is uh, the Hasidic, which is a reaction to that, basically saying like, no, why should we change to be like everybody else? Let's embrace the mystical. Let's embrace the religious aspects of our faith. Let's be more in accord with our teachings. And that's, that's where you get, you know, modern day, Hasidic Jews. And all of these are sort of conversations that are happening around what do we do about the rest of Europe, right? In 1789, you get the French Revolution, and France becomes the second nation in Europe to grant Jews uh, equal rights to the rest of its citizens, Poland being the first long before. However, the um, equality that's given under the French Revolution is with the expectation of assimilation that um, the state is abolishing uh, religion altogether. And I mean, keep in mind that the French Revolution, this is the whole, like, take all the land back from the Catholic Church, convert Notre Dame into, you know, a temple to the holy knowledge or something like that. I forget what the name was exactly. But, uh, you know, you get your 100-minute hours on the clock and rename all the months, and, and they're just rewriting everything, right? Yeah. You know, there's a there's a speech before the National Assembly in 1789 where Claire Montonnerre says, uh, 
we must refuse everything to the Jews as a nation and accord everything to the Jews as individuals, which gives you a bit of an idea of what sort of emancipation we're talking about exactly. So we're not doing anything special for the Jewish people. However, people who are Jewish, we need to give them the same rights as everyone else. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's contempt for Judaism, but it's at least contempt for all religion, which step forward, question mark. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but it, it's, it's uh, yeah, not knowing a whole lot about this and hearing that it's, it's what, the, the late 1700s before, you know, France becomes the second... Uh, the second nation to grant equal rights to Jewish people is like, kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Napoleonic conquests that come a couple of decades later is probably one of the biggest forces for Jewish emancipation in the world um, because every country that Napoleon conquers and sets up a little client state, it's required that they emancipate their Jews. And again, this isn't out of a special love for the Jewish people. This is out of a devotion to an ideal of uh, secular life. This, the, the French Revolution is really disruptive in a lot of weird uh, intersecting ways. That It's kind of hard to wrap your head around after a little while, the effects it has everywhere. And the idea that it would be so anti-religious that it would be good for Jewish people is a really interesting notion. Yeah. There's a bunch of revolutions in 1848 that I do not have time to get into, possibly ever, because they take a really long time and they're very complicated. <laughs> but many of these revolutions result in uh, constitutions in nations that have never had constitutions before. And many of those constitutions codify emancipation for the Jews if it had not already been received, uh, achieved by um, previous measures. And so by the time you get to the creation of Germany in 1971, Jewish emancipation is codified in the, by the First German Reich on, you know, at the same time as, as the country of Germany is created. And you go from a Europe that is very much anti-Semitic to one that has all but abolished a religious-based anti-Semitism. And just like just to be clear, when you say, you know, a whole bunch of countries, you know, enshrined in their constitution, the emancipation of Jewish people, is that specifically the emancipation of jewish people or is that like freedom of religion um they are one in the same in this uh in, in this case right so freedom of religion people people know what you're talking about i guess right but there is also a um specific uh we are no longer going to bind jews by these specific laws against them this is a, you right. know, it's not, it's not always going to be listed out in those terms, but the laws that were specifically prohibiting Judaism are going to be removed through this process. Okay. So no, it's not always specifically about Jewish people, but it will benefit them. The, the only place that anti-Semitism is still encoded in uh, the law at this point would be uh, Russia. That being said, we get a fun new kind of racism in the 1850s which we spent a lot of time on in the last uh, topic, which is, uh, you know, scientific racism, as well as its uh, uh, fun cousin, social Darwinism, this idea that um, human beings are uh, multiple classifiable races and that some races are superior to others. I spent a very long time talking about this last time. I would encourage people to listen to that one. But the functional consequence of this is that while people no longer have a legal religious leg to stand on in terms of 
their anti-Semitism, what you do get are assertions that the Jews, who have managed to stay very distinct over much more than a thousand years as a community, there's an assertion that while many of them don't really look physically different than most other Europeans, certainly not in the ways that they're used to classifying race, that the Jews are very, very, very much a distinct race that are not the same as other Europeans. And in this system, uh, not the same means one is better than the other. And uh, you know how that's going to go. Yeah. There's a lot in, you know, while we just talked about, you know, Germany emancipating the Jews in, in, in 1871, there's a lot in Jewish, uh, in uh, German culture that still remains kind of anti-Semitic, very anti-Semitic. Richard Wagner, the, uh, the composer, publishes a piece called Jewishness in Music, um, initially anonymously, but as it gets support, he comes out as uh, has a, having written it, which is maybe the most cowardly way you could do a racism. <laughs> Talking about how there's this Jewish influence in German culture and music that's a, a corrupting force, basically. It's making it worse. Uh, he says that Jewish people are a, a people without a land, without a nation, and that it makes them sort of... Um, susceptible to subversion and to uh you know not being anchored by anything and this is a this is a problem in his eyes culturally they tend to be villains uh grim's fairy tales come to mind there's a lot of grim's fairy tales where uh, a jewish person is the is the villain of the of the story get out oh yeah oh yeah it's full of it man and this this new thing comes up as as a result of these ideas which is this blame for control of not only the economy which is a little bit older of an idea but also the culture this idea that like culture could just be better somehow if there weren't jewish people that they're dragging everybody else down somehow and it's this idea of not being truly x not being truly german or not being truly french um this idea of a lack of loyalty and this is very much in line with ideas about nationalism and specifically the idea of the nation state that's becoming very, very popular in the mid 1800s. This idea that every people should have its own state and that everyone within that state should be the same people. That hasn't been true for Jewish people for, you know, 1800 years now. It's just not. Yeah. And so there's this, this, this um, distrust of anybody who's Jewish. It's this idea that, like, well, they could turn traitor at any time because they, they don't have any more loyalty to the state or to uh, the nation than, than any other nation. And so you get the, the Dreyfus Affair in France, which I actually did a whole episode on a few months ago. If I had realized that I was doing a whole thing on anti-Semitism, I might have saved it. But I'm kind of glad I went into detail about it. The, the Dreyfus Affair was a... Um, military scandal in France in the 1890s where a Jewish artillery officer was accused of leaking military secrets to the German army. And not only was he innocent, but the military actually discovered the true leak and then buried it while continuing to blame uh, Alfred Dreyfus for treason through this entire process. The real traitor, who they knew during the the trial itself, he he got away. Yeah, it, it's it's the trial was very much based on his Jewishness. That was that was a main selling point. Um, any other evidence was very much drummed up against him. Obviously, due to the Holocaust, we have this idea of Germany being uh, especially um, anti-Semitic. This is not true. This is not a. a, a 
rare thing in Europe. You know, this is a this is a thing that is taking place throughout. It's there, there's anti-Semitism in France. There's anti-Semitism in Britain. Russia, my goodness, Russia is terrible. Um, beginning in 1881, these slaughters that we talked about earlier really ramp up. Alexander II, uh, the Tsar, is is assassinated by uh, by anarchists and atheists and the assassination is blamed on the Jews and there are massacres within within uh, within Russia blaming them for this assassination that they did not commit between the 1880s and the mid 19 teens many 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 Jewish people are killed in Russia Russia's a it's in dire straits in these decades like it's a it's a very turbulent time they are um, economically out. They are years behind technologically. I mean, they only they only free the serfs in the late eighteen hundreds. You know, literacy is down the tubes. They lose a war to Japan, which is the first time a, mil- uh, a European military has been defeated by a non-European military since the Mongols, I believe, which is a huge stain to their reputation for the rest of Europe. And at every turn. They are blaming the Jews for these problems. Why did the the war go bad? They were sabotaged by the Jews. Um, why is their economy so bad? Well, the Jews control the economy. In 1902, there's a uh, pamphlet, almost a full book, called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, published by Rus- Russian anti-Semites, but it's published as though they found some sort of handbook by which there's a Jewish conspiracy that runs throughout Europe by which Jews are controlling the politics of all the different nations, that this um, unattachment that we talked about is actually a, you know, it's one layer of all of this, but the deeper layer is a uh, a strict um, devotion to the idea of a united Jewish power that runs beneath all of this, that there's uh, there's there's a concept of the Jewish people overthrowing all of Europe, and then there will be an entirely Jewish Europe, and that this will be a bad, depraved thing. And this pamphlet is actually still published today by uh, anti-Semites as uh, so-called proof that that there really is a Jewish conspiracy in the world, even though it's been debunked for well over or, uh, over a hundred years, almost a hundred years. We're coming up on the anniversary of debunking it. It was it was debunked in 1921, but this is also a book that. You know, Henry Ford spends lots of his own money to have hundreds of thousands of copies distributed in the United States. It's it's going on everywhere. These slaughters in in Russia, by the way, drive out so many uh, Jews uh, that nearly two million of them emigrate to the United States uh, during that period between 1880 and, and 1915. And things really only end in in Russia for. Uh, Jewish uh, persecution with the Russian Civil War. So after the the Bolshevik Revolution, there's an internal war for control of the country. And as part of this war, over 50,000 Jewish people are executed as part of their attempt to take control of the country. So much of of this just is so hard to process like it's it's mm. you sit there and you're talking about like wagner you know uh seeing it as a problem that the jewish people don't have a homeland and and aren't grounded in any one place and it's like well yeah but that's because they were slaughtered and driven out of every I mean, it's just like, like mm-hmm. seeing the the anti-semitism beget more anti-semitism like i can't 
it's frustrating to listen to as as someone who's outside of it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I can't. It's hard to wrap your head around it. Mm-hmm. it yeah, it's it's got a it's got a logic to it. It's a bad logic, but like you can you can follow it. It's just that the core of it is so flawed that it's it's hard to keep your your head in that in that track, right? You kind of keep snapping out of it and being like, but none of this makes sense. Yeah. Concurrent with all of this, there's a lot of new discussions of uh, Zionism, the idea of a dedicated Jewish homeland. Uh, it is very understandable why. Yeah. Some people are proponents for um, resettlement in historical homelands in, in, in the Middle East. Some are basically saying, we'll take anywhere. Anywhere that we can have a majority, anywhere we, where we have self-determinism. Um, this should not be a should not be a surprising uh, development, and yet even the discussion of Zionism is cause for concern among anti Semites who believe that this is a play for further geopolitical power. You cannot win. Yeah, because this whole topic is leading up to our discussion on fascism. Of course, um, I, I think that's probably about the point where we're going to leave things off today. We are going to leave discussion of, of things like the, the Holocaust and um, everything leading up to it to that topic. But, you know, without getting too deeply into it, I, I hope that what I've done today has helped lay out an answer to a question that's, that's often a little bit hard about, about the Holocaust, which is why on earth would the Nazis have had such a problem with the Jewish people anyways? And the answer, I, I think, is that when you look at the history of, of the place in uh, uh, Jews hold in Europe throughout history, it's a place where people have always felt very, very comfortable laying the blame for many diverse types of problems, whether or not there's anything even remotely to do with Jewish people whatsoever. And that's why I was kind of okay with not necessarily talking about Jewish history, but rather the history of, of, of Jewish persecution by Christian Europeans, because that's not, this isn't the story of, of the Jewish people. This is a story of, of what the rest of Europe has, has kind of done to them over the centuries. And when you look at it, you know, over this huge stretch, I, I, I hope you can see where, you know, the idea of a, a populist coming into power and saying, Listen, I know the cause of all these problems that you've been having. It's these people. I, I hope you can see why so many people were so comfortable with saying, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. No, it definitely it definitely puts it in a whole in a whole different light. I mean, that's that's kind of right. Like you learn about the Holocaust in grade school, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. from I don't know for me it was like grade five grade six yeah and it's it's you're like how could you you know how could you how could you believe that like how could you believe that this one group of people was, was responsible for all of a country's problems and yet hearing you go through it from you know before 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 Christ to to the early 1900s it's like it's like oh yeah like like of course of course a leader would try that like 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 of course of course that would be like a like a bag that he would go back to yeah definitely we talked at the beginning about uh, a quick pop quiz remember that 
<laughs> so I've got a couple, yeah. I've got a couple anti-Semitic tropes here and I want you to tell me where they come from. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. So the first one is that there is something uh, inherently subversive about the Jewish people that they may be part of a culture, but they're not really part of that culture. Where does that go to? Uh, does that, oh man, I feel like, um, like, does that go back to like the heresies and like Christians trying to like pin, uh, pin mm. down like subversive aspects of like different, even further back, uh, even further back, the Romans, right, 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 right. The Romans and the, the refusal of the Jewish people to pray to, to worship the, the Roman, the Roman gods and worship at the Roman temple. Uh huh. And the, and the insurgencies that came of that, uh, you know, from that refusal, why won't you just fall in line? Right. That's what's known as cultural anti-Semitism. It's this idea that there's something, there's something culturally cultural about these people that causes this, uh, you know, there's something about them that they won't fit in. And, and right. really does go back to the Roman Empire. Okay, so what about the idea that Jewish religious practices are demonic? Is that is that the part that comes from from the heresies? Mm-hmm. Yep, the heresies having having like weird like those weird offshoots of Christianity and having certain attributes attributed to them, which then kind of became attributed to Jewish people as well. That's right, but also also the early writings of the the Christian Church and attempts to distinguish themselves from uh, the Jewish faith that they kind of uh, uh, originated in. Right, right. That would be known as religious anti-Semitism. That one's actually not nearly as common today as it used to be, mainly for a very specific reason, which is that religious anti-Semitism suggests that if a Jewish person converts from Judaism, there's no longer an issue there. Uh, today's anti-Semites aren't so easily fooled. They think that if you were ever a Jewish person, you will always be a Jewish person because it's not just about religion, right? It's about ethnicity and, and they have a problem with both the religion and ethnicity. So, yeah. oh yeah, no, it's, it's multifaceted. And that's why I wanted to leave this till the end because there are a lot of people out there who are anti-Semites. The reason that they remain anti-Semites, uh, that part changes. Yeah. What about claims that the Jews hold the keys to world finance, controlling wealth and possibly politics as a result? Right. Um, I mean, the wealth part is easy. There was that that loophole, I, I assume, in the Old Testament that said so mm-hmm. Christians couldn't loan money between Christians. But there was a loophole that said the Jewish people could loan money to Christians. And so they in part because they couldn't they couldn't own you know the best farmland and were restricted in other ways like money lending was one of the professions that they fell into yeah um and then the political thing i think was just i mean i from what i remember that was just the just like rumors that were and and the 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 book whose name that i i can't remember Mm -hmm. suggesting that there was that that kind of you know, Europe-wide conspiracy. Yeah, the book was called Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and yeah, that's that's full marks right there. There's this there's this thing where you know the fact that um, so many, or not even so many, but that there were Jewish families that became wealthy through banking, you know, lends itself to these ideas about uh, greed and dishonesty, and you know, it's it's. <laughs> 
it's given everybody else economic anxiety, not having as much money. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, th that part is very much like an economic anti-Semitism, this idea that they control, uh, the world banks. And then the political one is, it's a little different. That's like a, a national anti-Semitism or nationalist anti-Semitism. This idea that, um, you know, homeless people have no true, uh, allegiances, um, except to maybe others of their own, their own race. Right. And then, Finally, how about a belief that the Jews are a distinct and inferior race of people who are uh, lowering the quality of uh, whichever nation they reside in? Right. That goes back to the the evolution discussion mm -hmm. and and that idea of that that there are different not just that there are different races, but that they're they're classified as as either better than or worse than the, mm -hmm. the race beside them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, given all the other stuff that's, it's, it's no surprise that that, um, classification ends up being a negative one. Right. I mean, it's the same thing that happens to, um, scientific racism when it comes to the classification of, of black people. Right. It's, it's, uh, it, it's convenient to upholding the previous worldview it's not uh, forcing anyone to, to uh, reckon with the prejudices they've previously had but um yeah that's that's uh that's a racial anti-semitism roots are in modern ideas about race about nationalism about uh, ethno-nationalism the idea of one nation one state um all of this stuff that is you know very important to western europeans and then when it's imposed on other parts of the world really really poorly handled you know for example in the in the aftermath of world war 1 where it's kind of like well you know we need to make sure that like each and every little province on the border of france and and germany is is accounted for historically but also let's you know just create the nation of czechoslovakia out of two uh, out of two peoples that really don't historically get along well together but it looks neat on a map this uh, this conception of Jewishness uh, uh, really falls into that same double standard for how important it is for a people to have a place of their own. They resent uh, Jewish people for not having a place of their own, but they're also loath to do anything about getting them one, uh, at least until after the Second World War. So um, that's the quiz. Yeah, the the point, as I said earlier, is that you know there's there's no one anti-Semitism. Most people are holding more than one at a given time, and depending on who you are and when you live, you might have very very different ideas about why you hate Jewish people. But all of them go back to these historical contexts that are in no way insidious, uh, at least um, on the part of the Jewish people who are being marginalized, right? Yeah. Yeah, man, that's uh, maybe the heaviest episode that I've been a part of. It's, it's, I mean, there's, there's so much of history that's hard to hear when you hear about the oppression of one specific group of people mm -hmm. over two thousand plus years. Mm -hmm. It's, it's. I mean, a, a lot of, for a lot of that, honestly, like there were moments where you would, yeah, tell me about like, oh yeah, like, and then a bunch of people were slaughtered or like then so-and-so you know then there was this book that that alluded to this vast conspiracy like i like my mouth was hanging open because i like there's just there's so little that you can respond except like that's that's wild and that's so hard to believe that that people believe that mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's 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 unreal man i i 
there, there's a lot of there's a lot of topics that I set out to do, and I think ah, oh, this is going to be nice and pat and easy, and they they end up getting you know wildly more complicated uh, than I was expecting. This one was almost the opposite. I was kind of like ah oh, man, how am I going to tackle all of this stuff? And it turns out that the, like no, there's really good scholarship and like a very very clear through line on how all of these ideas have developed over the past two thousand years, and it's not complicated. It's all prejudice. Um, it's prejudice for different reasons at different times. And sometimes people don't even necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily aware of the sources of their own prejudices. They're only, only aware of the oppression that they're visiting on other people. But we know, we know now looking back, it's, it's very, very clear. Yeah. It was, it was almost disappointingly easy in that regard. Like, like, like I was hoping it would be more hidden and it's just not, it's just out in the open. It's all right there. So anyways, yeah. Um, anything, anything else stand out to you uh, in terms of questions that weren't answered or, or particularly surprising bits that you know, maybe weren't necessarily uh, aware of, but now make a whole lot more sense to you? Anything like that? Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, all of it. I mean, as I said, like the, you know, seeing the way that, that people tried to place the blame for like society's ills or a country's ills on Jewish people. It's, it's, you know, it's not surprising that, that Germany went to that well Mm -hmm. in, you know, in the early 1900s, I think. And I think, I think the other just surprising bit was that, I mean, there, there were a couple of times, like you mentioned the enlightenment and the, the kind of that being a, a better time for Jewish people. And then, but then it, it, I guess society, Europe as a whole, slipped back into those old patterns and really never, never made any significant gains. Yeah. Uh, in in terms of the way, in terms of the way that 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 they treated the Jewish population, it's like it, I like that. I guess the the part where it, just the cyclical nature of it is just astounding, and to to see people you know to see to see poland make the decision they did to to you know you encode equal rights for for jewish people and then again and then and then have that shattered Mm -hmm. uh for that population it's just so heartbreaking to hear about really yeah yeah it's 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 not an easy subject at all but um i i I think you know part part of the part of the story of, of anti-Semitism that we, we tend to leave off on, on stuff like this, but is, is definitely worth mentioning is it like, it's not as though it's gone. Like there's this idea sometimes in the popular conception that like, Oh, and then, you know, world war two happened and then never again. Right. Like we, you know, we, we stopped being anti-Semitic. No, no, no. There's, there's still so much out there and, and it, yeah. it's not as though there's new roots to it for the most part. I mean, uh, not, not in the, not in the in the form of anti-semitism that exists throughout most of the western world it's it's based on all these old tropes and and you know there's there's not a lot new under the sun there these things are worth knowing about for the context of what we're building up to uh with this series but it's also worth knowing about for you know your life in general because you'll see people at at the strangest times bust out some of these uh, ideas about uh, about Jewish people, sometimes very very maliciously, sometimes unthinkingly, and you know it's 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 important to know a little bit about where those came from because it's not harmless, no matter how veiled it ends up being. Uh, it's it's still very applicable. 
Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, and, and yeah, as you said, I mean, being able to, yeah, being able to refute some of those ideas, because as you said, the, the tropes, I mean, I don't come across I have very many overt anti-Semites in my day-to-day life, but you do, I mean, whether it's on the internet or wherever, you do still hear those tropes and being able to refute them mm-hmm. is, I think, yeah, very important. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Of course, man. Thanks for having me back. We'll have to do it again sometime real soon. Discriminatory ideas about Jewish people are nothing new. They've been Europe's favorite scapegoat for two millennia now. Specific stereotypes may vary, but each has its roots in benign historical situations that have been weaponized against them time and time again. It has created, in a way, an imagined enemy for almost any situation, a feature of anti-Semitism that will be exploited to greatest effect by Nazi Germany, resulting in the Holocaust. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that Germany was formed in 1971. Slip of the tongue, it was of course 1871, that's how you know the show is unscripted right there. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there that we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.